welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That's our brand new subscriber section. That's replaced the print magazine, which we've retired and sent to a nice, warm, sunny location that we can't disclose to anybody at this time. But we have now Counterpunch Plus. This is an excellent feature that you get with your Counterpunch subscription. You get access to all all of this exclusive content that you really won't find anywhere else, investigative pieces, long form essays, uh, uh, novel reviews, uh, the latest books on uh, left wing subjects that you can that you can peruse there. We've had a lot of former guests who are contributing to Counterpunch. Lots of great stuff there. So please do consider getting your subscription. It is a great way to make sure that independent media continues to thrive in this time, especially when we need it as all the more uh, censorship and repression of speech and all of these other things are uh, hot subjects these days, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not so good reasons. But Counterpunch has been around for almost 30 years. We plan to be around for many, many years to come, hopefully with your help. So please do consider that subscription. Also, if you like my work, you can follow me and support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Lots more stuff there, including uh, political analysis, international relations, uh, videos and articles and things of that nature. And a lot more. So anyway, okay, let me welcome back to the show a returning guest, a friend of the show. This is maybe third or fourth uh, visit to us. Uh, Yasmin Mather is once again with me. Yasmin is one of the uh, most insightful sources I know uh, for all things Iran, for analysis of issues related to Iran, uh, the situation both in that country as well as with foreign policy related to Iran. Yasmin is the editor of the journal Critique. She is a researcher at Oxford University. She's also the chairperson of the very important organization, Hands Off the People of Iran, the website hopoi.org. Yasmin, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thank you very much for inviting me. So thank you so much for coming back for all of your great work, of course. And I want to just begin with something of a standard question at this point, um, but I think it bears it bears asking, what does Biden mean for Iran? What does a transition from Trump to Biden mean? How is it going to be reflected uh, in the U.S. posture towards Iran? I suppose, given the disasters that Trump was for Iran, there were a lot of hopes by sections of the people inside Iran, but also people who are fed up with sanctions, threat of war, uh, with the Biden election. We could say it's been a very, very slow start in that very little has moved substantially in the last few months, in the last couple of months. What we are seeing uh, now is, in, and only in the last few days, I would say the last week, is a slight speeding up of um, the ad new administration regarding issues such as JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, we've seen two uh, approaches. I think they are not unrelated to Iran's threat of uh, stopping any cooperation with the um, IAEA by Monday, 22nd February. So we are seeing some movement in terms of UN, um, the uh, return of 
Iran's sanctions has been uh, that Trump had asked UN to impose uh, has now been withdrawn. Um, in terms of very superficial changes, the restrictions on the movement of the Iranian delegates in the UN headquarters in New York and the area in which they can move in New York has been lifted. Um, there is um, talks that during the G7 discussions, Biden uh, promised a meeting with 5 plus 1 and Iran, with the US participating in this. So although there were promises of um, an immediate return to the Iran nuclear negotiations and the nuclear deals that was signed by Obama, uh, everything has gone very slowly. We might see um, a speeding up in the next few weeks. But then that, of course, begs the question whether that is a deal that can even be returned to. Uh, are the circumstances such that uh, this is even on the table? I mean, it's, it's of course, been talked about, but uh, even from the Iranian perspective, how could you even come back to this deal, given everything that's happened and given the erosion of trust? Absolutely. However, I think um, if I understand correctly, the messages that both Hamney has said, but also Rouhani has said, um, lifting of sanctions, and here I think we are talking of sanctions that were imposed when um, during the Trump administration. I don't think it means all sanctions. Um, lifting of those sanctions will bring Iran back to the negotiating table. Uh, both sides realize the economic survival probably of the country is in danger if they don't do that. Um, having said that, um, there is the problem of uh, both US and the European countries uh, now wanting additional subjects to be part of these negotiations. And of course, Iran would rightly say, you signed a deal, you withdrew from it, this is the US, now you want to add uh, ballistic missiles or Iran's policies in the Middle East, it's a no-go. So we are not very sure how this can progress. All I'm saying is um, inside Iran, sanctions have created major problems. Uh, sale of oil uh, is export of oil is being hindered by these sanctions. Uh, the country's income is seriously damaged. And therefore, um, uh, should sanctions be removed, or at least some sanctions be removed, Iran will go to the negotiating table. Well, since you've already mentioned it, let's let's dig into that a little further. What is the economic situation like in Iran? How much has it deteriorated? Uh, certainly in the past, we've talked about uh, the difficulty with accessing very basic things like uh, uh, medicines, especially for more complex diseases and, and, and difficult cases. We've also talked about inability to access uh, cash markets, foreign currency, make foreign transactions and so forth. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what the economic situation is now, how much worse has it gotten? What does it look like? Okay, so um, the currency in a way reflects the economic situation. So Iran's currency is now uh, probably, I don't know, a lot, <laughs> a lot less than when Trump came to power in exchange with dollar or any other Europe in major European currencies. 
and it fluctuates. This fluctuation can be the perception of the economy in terms of what will happen politically. So, for example, the week Biden got elected in November, uh, the dollar, uh, the exchange rate improved in terms of the Iranian currency by about 20%. But that was quite instantaneous. So it's gone back again, right? And then occasionally when there's news of a new initiative, it goes up. So we are talking of a very, um, if you like, fluent situation as far as that is concerned. The exchange rate matters because Iran imports basic food material. Iran imports fruits, vegetables, everything. And the price in the in the daily basket of an Iranian family buying food dramatically changes because of that. So people have become used to, the poorer sections of the population have become used to being deprived of many items that you would consider essential for a healthy diet. Uh, however, they, they somehow survive within that, but it's very difficult. And of course, um, as we go on with this sanction, um, even those smaller um, parts of Iran industry that had survived uh, the, um, uh, if you like, the original sanctions are finding themselves in a situation where it is impossible to continue working. Um, raw materials are expensive. Uh, consumption inside the country is reduced. And therefore, um, the economic situation is really very, very difficult. If you look at the protests we've seen in the last couple of weeks, retired employees, many of them retired civil servants, teachers, retired um, clerk assistants, and so on, have been protesting. Their protests are very clear. Their pensions um, do not cover basic uh, needs of a pensioner. And uh, they've been on with placards outside various uh, ministries and so on, um, explaining we are hungry is one of the slogans we see quite a lot in Iran now. And of course, um, uh, both workers that have been unemployed, but also even workers who have a job uh, must um, have two, three jobs in order to survive. Uh, some people work um, as an Uber driver, then as a shop assistant, then go back and do something else. And they might have been a teacher or a civil servant before this. So it's, it, life is difficult in terms of economic situation. And of course, that then translates into a political question. And I guess the political question is really central in Iran today. Uh, we're recording here towards the end of February. Uh, we will have a presidential election in Iran in just a few months. So why don't we examine that and what it's going to mean? So let's begin by just a general um, survey of the political factions that exist in Iran. Uh, what are the different camps and how are the different camps shaping up in terms of uh, potentially fielding candidates and uh, what this election is going to look like? Very complicated situation. So um, Rouhani is still president, as you know. There are names being uh, put forward as potential 
reformist faction candidates. Zarif, his foreign minister, is one of them. However, you have to remember that uh, Rouhani is facing a lot of opposition inside the country, um, both from conservatives but also disillusioned reformists. Uh, the um, uh, uh, last week on the anniversary of the February Revolution of 79, in some cities, uh, security or um, people associated with security forces were demonstrating on motorbikes with the slogan, Death to Rouhani. Uh, the government complained about this. Uh, there is an inquiry going on. But to think that you have a president uh, where uh, sections of military or security forces go on a demonstration shouting for his death is not exactly what you call confidence building. Um, there are uh, rumors that um, Musavi, uh, the leader of the Green Movement, has been given some more freedoms. So he's been contacting people, including uh, media-associated former colleagues, um, I don't think he, anyone is expecting him to be a surprise candidate, but I think he might be the kingmaker if, for example, Zarif stands. And if that happens, it must happen with the approval of Ayatollah Khamenei. It won't happen accidentally. And I don't think the fact that Musavi has suddenly appeared on the scene is also accidental. This, um, if the if Khamenei's assessment is that the next presidential election with just um, right-wing candidates, with just conservative candidates, such as maybe Ayatollah Raisi, maybe Qalibath, the current um, leader of uh, the Majlis, the Iranian Islamic Parliament, if it's just that, it will become such a boring election that no one will participate in it. And contrary to what people think, Khamenei is quite astute. He's not going to have, in these very dangerous situations, an election where it's either a foregone conclusion that his favorite candidate, Raisi or Khalibaf or some other conservative, will become president, or that the other um, uh, reformist candidate is such a nobody that there won't be a real contempt uh, he will not be a real contender. So my guess is that in order to uh, create a more exciting election, we will hear surprises here. Uh, some people think it will only be between a candidate of the Revolutionary Guards, the Pastaran, and some conservative cleric. I would say a very large proportion of the population will not be bothered with such an election, whatever threat they put in terms of your future um, employment or whatever, if you don't participate in elections. So we might see surprises, uh, but it is a very difficult situation because Rouhani hasn't really delivered anything. So he was elected on the strengths of the um, JCPOA agreement, nuclear agreement, the nuclear agreement, uh, Trump moved out of it, but as a result of it, the economic situation has worsened terribly. And then we have the situation where um, uh, 
in terms of political freedoms, uh, people haven't seen any improvement. In terms of women's rights, people haven't seen much improvement. And there are uh, 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 corruption charges against both factions. So, uh, and we know that because each faction then um, exposes the other side's corruption. So we have trials going on, which include um, the brother of Rouhani, his son-in-law, at the same time as co serious corruption trials against allies of Ahmadinejad, who, as you know, was the hero of privatization in Iran. And now we know that these privatizations involved massive corruption in the country. It's interesting that you just brought up Ahmadinejad because there have been a, a raft of stories in the last couple of weeks about Ahmadinejad himself potentially making a political comeback. I know that he had uh, apparently written a, a few letters to some high, highly placed uh, contacts of his, and there are rumors that he might himself uh, jump back into the uh, election. That is, of course, if he is given okay by the uh, the Guardian Council and so forth. So what about Ahmadinejad? Is he potentially a surprise candidate or one of his protégés? I think he will try he will try to do so. The problem Ahmadinejad faces are these high-profile um, trials that are still going on. Um, so there are, there, and some of them are very close to him, his ministers, um, his brother-in-law, various people associated with him. But that is definitely the case. He hasn't been quiet, even by making at times controversial, not necessarily pro-Islamic statements, Ahmadinejad has made sure he's in the news um, by giving interviews to news agencies that um, even the moderate left would refuse to go because they're so closely associated with Saudi Arabia. But he has not shied away from that media presence with the ideas that any publicity is good publicity. Uh, we will see. My guess is that the um, supreme leader will not be very keen on that. As you know, he tried to stand in 2016 and Khamenei dissuaded him. We will have to see this time. And it's interesting too to think about Ahmadinejad. So the question for you, I guess, is in that scenario where hypothetically he were to be even even a, if not a candidate in the picture um on the strength of what? Because his economic management was seen as a dismal failure, as you just mentioned, the corruption and uh, just the policies themselves having been seen as a failure. So is Ahmadinejad's cachet more that unlike Rouhani, he uh, was, you know, quote unquote, had a spine when dealing with the United States, that his foreign policy reflected uh, a little bit more of an assertive Iran rather than the passive Rouhani? Is that the idea? He might try that. That will not succeed either because we now know that the nuclear negotiations actually started while he was in power. So he gave a lot of slogans about the US, but um, he was negotiating. He, his his um, staff were paving the way for what became the Iran nuclear deal. And that's quite open to most people in Iran. I think he's standing on a platform of uh, look, you've tried the reformists for eight years. Uh, they have failed. 
So it's more a negative campaign. Uh, Rouhani hasn't improved the economy. Uh, the nuclear deal is um, gone. And, and, and I will negotiate a new deal. He's not going to go on a no deal, let's build the bomb type of situation. So in some ways, he will be at a disadvantage against a conservative candidate, let's say Ralibaf or let's say Raisi, um, the current um, man who is running all the corruption trials because he's got judicial uh, roles, who will say, uh, we just have to come out of uh, the non-proliferation treaty. We have to build our bomb. We have to have a strong Iran that stands up to the US. We need to move closer to China and Russia. Uh, so that would be a much clearer message than Ahmadinejad, who will say, I'll negotiate another deal, if you know what I mean. So the failure of the deal um, uh, will not help, in my opinion, Ahmadinejad. Just before we go to the break, can you help us to understand just in our own minds the the political landscape here in terms of the factions? I mean, are we talking about Ahmadinejad as squarely being in the hardliner faction? Is he more kind of outside of that as sort of a an adjacent to that? Are there other factions within those two broad camps? Help us to uh, read what that looks like. Okay, I would say Ahmadinejad is not firmly in the conservative faction, right? He, of, um, he has um, made statements about um, <clears throat> uh, Iranian culture, Iranian um, nationality, and so on, that puts him firmly outside that conservative faction. The conservative faction has many factions within it, as the reformist faction has. So we are talking of um, what I would call the military wing of the conservative faction, the Pastoran, maybe one of the leaders of the Revolutionary Guards as a candidate, that's a possibility. We are also then looking at clerics within the conservative faction. And some of these clerics are presenting themselves as, if you like, the Taliban of Iran. They're going to clean up the corruption scandals. That's their uh, message. The message they're giving is, Raisi's position is, I'm going to clean up this whole mess of privatizations that have led to corruption. But he's not saying I'm against privatization. Right? So let's be very clear about that. He's going to be uh, the candidate of uh, the pure, the untouched, whatever. Oh, and then we have people like Ghalivov, who, um, former mayor of Tehran, who are technocrats, but conservative technocrats. And they're going to present themselves as people who are conservative in ideology, but they are efficient. They can do things. Um, they can... Uh, build roads, they can get Iran out of this mess. So the three, if you like, the clerics, the technocrats, and the military within the conservative faction are one set of candidates. Then within the reformists, there are those who would might appear who would say Rouhani didn't go far enough in terms of his promises about democracy. 
about allowing at least uh, personal freedoms um, and who might then uh, try and bring back the concept of um, the Musavi uh, president's candidacy. And then there are those who would say, no, Rouhani did as well as he could. And I would put there Zarif because as a close ally of Rouhani, he can't dissociate himself from the last eight years. Uh, but we are in for surprises, is all I'm saying. And just before we just before we go to the break, uh, the Green Movement from from 2009. Uh, where does that stand now in terms of public perceptions? In terms of uh, public support, uh, has it has it grown? Has it diminished? How does it look in view of eight years of Rouhani? I would say it's diminished um, partly because. Um, it was very much around figureheads, the three people involved, um, Musavi, Zahra Rahnavat, his wife, and Karubi. And the house arrest of these three has really reduced, because it was, it was always very much an um, individual, if you like, associated with individuals. So the house arrest has worked, in my opinion. I think some of the people associated with the Green Movement have moved to the left, if I understand correctly, people I speak to inside Iran. So some of the uh, new writers, new um, authors, political authors in Iran are former uh, Green Movement members who are now um, more left-wing. They don't, they no longer consider themselves green, part of the green movement. However, a Musavi reappearance might change all that. And then we have the green movement people who came into exile, many of them journalists, political activists. Those people have moved to the right. If you look at the uh, right-wing press and media, including the Saudi, uh, what I call Saudi International, it's a TV station entirely paid by Saudi Arabia. Most of these green people in there are now royalists, now pro-Trump. They might not consider themselves royalists or pro-Trump, but that's where they are situated politically. So the green movement has broken into these two divisions, the right and the left. Um, inside Iran, you can't say people have completely given up on the green movement, but it's not what it's nowhere near what it was 10 years ago when Musavi was under was put under house arrest and Karubi. A lot more to discuss. We will pick it up right there after the break. I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the military maneuvers that Iran has been focused on recently, the impact of COVID, what's going on in the country there, the lasting impact of the assassination of Soleimani. A whole lot more to discuss with Yasemin Mather. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Enjoy the music. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Yasemin Mather. Again, the organization Hands Off the People of Iran, the website hopoi.org. Yasemin's analysis is always at the very top of the list when you're trying to understand Iran. Um, so, Yasemin, I want to just kind of pick up a little bit uh, some of the issues that we were discussing before the break. And, you know, really just finishing off this, this question about the political evolution post 2009, and you kind of already teased it a little bit before the break. Um, so here's the question. What is the lasting impact of Trump and the Trump era on Iranian politics? And I mean, particularly with respect to the Iranian diaspora in the United States. Well, how has that been impacted? The impact is uh, well, probably what I would say uh, is the U.S. society in general. It's complete division. So there, is, there are those who became very hardline pro-Trump supporters. I understand uh, there were pictures of some of them on the 6th January protests outside Capitol Hill with the royalist flag, mainly royalists, not just royalists, but mainly royalists, pro-son uh, of the ex-Shah to return to Iran, but quite numerous and quite hardline. I mean, they are, they are 100% pro-Trump. Uh, they call him the president of the hearts in Persian, President Qalpa, and he's their hero, basically, mainly because he was more openly for regime change. If you like, George Bush was for regime change, Clinton was for regime change in Iran, Obama in some ways was for regime but they wouldn't openly say it. While uh, Pompeo as Trump's foreign uh, a State Department man, was very clear he wanted regime change in Iran. So if you like, the shyness went away and these royalists found their hero. Um, having said that, you have to remember that uh, uh, Rouhani has recently said Trump apparently sent him at least eight personal messages for meeting up with him at various events, UN events, outside events, and so on. So uh, both sides, Iran and Trump, were lying about how bad, how much they hated each other. They were both after some form of negotiations. The difference was Trump wanted a photo opportunity. Iran wanted lifting of sanctions. That's why this didn't happen, if like the meeting didn't happen. But that doesn't stop the fact that royalists in Iran absolutely adored uh, Trump. More importantly, Trump's allies in the region were given a boost, uh, Ben Salman in Saudi Arabia and Israel, and both of them finance these trashy television broadcasting authorities in Persian language, which broadcast 24 hours 7, all sorts of nonsense to the poor Iranian people. Nostalgia films about how great the Shah's era was, and nostalgia about uh, women's rights under the Shah. This is a man who thought well, women's brains were smaller than men's. And yet, you know, we are Iranian. If you were a young Iranian and didn't know what the Shah used to say, you will have a different opinion listening to these uh, pretty awful uh, TV stations. So Trump influenced those. And of course, Trump. Um, made sure that sanctions were very severe, as we've mentioned before, in terms of medication, in terms of Iranian people holding accounts abroad, 
a penny transferred from anywhere inside Iran to anywhere outside Iran could be um, part of this uh, frozen by the banks, fearful of secondary sanctions by the Trump administration. So the Trump administration will be remembered by anyone with an iota of intelligence, any Iranian with an iota of intelligence, as the darkest period we've seen. Uh, not because um, they liked the Iranian government, but because they were personally affected by the sanctions, by the measures he took. Um, and of course, there had been a lot of hope about the nuclear deal and his withdrawal um, destroyed sections of industry where the concept of lifting of sanctions had created a situation where hope was for at least some level of production inside the country. And the Iranian diaspora is also, um, you know, has access to wealth. Oftentimes, there are a lot of well-placed, economically successful, financially uh, important uh, individuals within the Iranian diaspora. So I'm wondering, just because what we've seen of other diaspora communities that also aligned with Trump, uh, how much uh, outside financing is being provided for some of this fake news stuff, for some of the media presence, for the proliferation of some of these narratives? Because that has obviously been a major issue uh, in Latin America. We've seen that in Brazil, where the diaspora community has done that, Venezuela, certainly. Uh, how is it with Iran, the diaspora, and their financial muscle? It is true that some of these people have great wealth, but remember that uh, the Shah's son um, has um, gambled quite a lot of the fortune he inherited. He spent a lot of it. He's, he keeps saying people have stolen his money and so on. So these people relied quite a lot on finances from uh, basically pro-Israeli um, institutions and the National Endowment for Democracy. NED is one of the biggest funders of Iranian diaspora. All these organizations you hear with the word human right in it have somehow got fundings of millions, not at times, I think if you add what they've got, it gets to billions from NED. But there are other, um, what I would call Republican Zionist um, funds that played a direct role. Um, for a short time, Pompeo also allocated a budget from the State Department for what was called Iran misinformation or disinformation or something like that. And it, it stopped in 2019, 2020, for some reason. I don't know if it was the Congress elections or Senate elections or internal US politics. He stopped it. But there were also, in addition to these funds, there was also direct State Department funding. However, the Saudis, who are committed to regime change in Iran, um, are big finances, uh, uh, contributors to um, what I would call regime change propaganda. 
I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the impact of the assassination of Soleimani. What impact has that had on uh, Iranian society, uh, Iranian politics, the mindset of many people in the country? Has it had a lasting impact? Can you explain uh, what Soleimani and his assassination represents in the Iranian mind? As far as I can tell, and it's very difficult judging it from outside, so I'm relying on what people tell me from inside the country. Um, maybe because of um, the image that the government had portrayed of him, but he was popular. I don't think we can deny the fact that he was popular among sections of Iranian population who don't necessarily support all of the government. And we can see that in the protests that took, in the funeral ceremonies that took place after his assassination. And in a way, the way this assassination was done was so crude. The US so openly kind of claimed credit for it that it galvanized, I think, uh, nationalist sentiments. Um, uh, just to give you one example, the former foreign minister of the Shah, who now is more critical of the Shah's era, was amongst the people who said uh, Soleimani was a, was a hero of the nation, or words to that effect. So the nationalist feeling get, got quite worked up about Soleimani, um, his ex assassination. I think the government made a major mistake with the Ukrainian airline, the, the military. And that diffused that movement because, as you know, they mistook a passenger plane for a U.S. plane, military plane. They brought it down. I don't think there's any doubt that it was. I, I think the government now admits it was the uh, either by mistake or I, I would assume by mistake, a mistake by the Revolutionary Guard. But um, the uh, the incident itself then almost immediately changed the situation. So from a winning situation, the regime lost a lot of credibility because of the incident with the Ukrainian plane. Um, remember that most of the passengers were Iranians who were returning to Canada or to Europe after... Uh, Christmas break, university breaks. And so the family, uh, you know, we are talking of hundreds of people with families, young families, many of them uh, students, postgraduates, postdoctoral students. It created, a, if you like, it created a problem for all of the regime, whether they admit it or not. Having said that, and, and I think that's why on the anniversary of Soleimani's death, we didn't see the kind of protests that we saw in the original funerals. Otherwise, the anniversary, the one year after his death, would have been quite a big event. Does it affect Iran's military, military positions? I really don't think so. I think these people are portrayed as um, individual commanders. And yes, he was very popular, not just amongst Iranian military forces, but in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, people considered him uh, a hero. But I don't think 
in the 21st century, in, given the, the kind of wars we are facing, where military operation has so much uh, uh, artificial intelligence involved, drones involved, all sorts of other things involved, I don't think uh, his assassination has weakened Iran's military potential. Uh, in terms of publicity, in terms of appearance, yes, that was a defeat. Well, speaking of Iranian military posture, uh, one of the most interesting stories coming out uh, of the region in recent days and weeks has been the naval drills that the Iranian uh, Navy has been holding um, off the coast of the country. And the reason it's so interesting is because it was jointly held with the Russians. And even more interesting was that not just the Russians participated, but the Chinese elected to participate, and so did India. And so this of course, raises the question of Iran's role and position in the region and how Iran might negotiate between the uh, belligerence of the United States on the one hand and a potential pivot towards Russia and China, which has always been part of the conversation with Iran. So help us to understand a little bit about those dynamics and where Iran stands in relation to Russia, China, and the region. Okay, so in a what I would call a desperate situation, um, because Iran would have preferred if the EU and the Americans uh, made it an ally. But in the absence of that situation, uh, Iran has been pushed more and more towards Russia and China. And both of those countries have both economic, political, geopolitical interests in bringing Iran as an ally. For China, um, the continu continuation of a reliable source of oil is very important. And in a way for US, in its competition with China, stopping that route is also important, right? So we have on the cards this 25-year deal between Iran and China, which will involve um, not military, not just military, but mainly economic, uh, industrial investment, cooperation, and so on. It hasn't been signed yet, but I think that's Iran's insurance if negotiations with the West fails completely. And in the same way, militarily, Iran feels threatened because uh, almost every day, uh, they wake up to news of another bombing in Syria of Iranian-held or Iranian-supported militia uh, and by Israel. And they know they're not far from a nuclear power, Israel. They're not far from a very strong military power, Saudi Arabia, both of which are allied with U.S. Biden or Trump, they are allied with U.S., so for Iran, the threat of its, uh, if you like, local um, enemies makes it seek allies, military allies. And in that, both China and Russia have uh, been uh, moving, if you like, to fill the gap. So it's not at all surprising that Iran did this military exercise. My own surprise was India joining, to be honest. But anyway, that was on the cards, uh, I assume, once both Russia and China were involved. 
What is interesting is um, in the long term, how does Iran want to uh, square up this deep um, tendency, mainly inside the country, which is a young country, towards the West, you know, the sentiments of the younger generation, which is pro-West, whatever you think of it, and uh, the real politics that forces it to ally itself with Russia. And here, I would give you an example. One of the, we will talk about COVID later, but one of the countries that has given Iran vaccines is Russia. And there's a lot of negative publicity about the Russian vaccine. While if you read every medical report or journal or even the Western media, including BBC World Service, apparently the Russian vaccine is as good as any other vaccine. And yet inside the country, the sentiment is it must be bad because it's Russian. So the 40 years of, or the, I don't know, probably 40 years of publicity, propaganda about the West is the best coming from outside Iran has formed the mental um, thought uh, of a young population who, generally speaking, looks towards the West and thinks this is the haven that it pretends to be. With the few minutes that we have remaining, I do want to talk about COVID. Uh, Iran has in many ways been at the forefront of the COVID pandemic, really uh, from the beginning. And uh, so let's just discuss, if we could, what the situation of COVID is now. And in particular, how is Iran dealing with COVID with all of the other hardships associated with sanctions like you know medical equipment and uh, devices and medications and things of that nature? So how has it, you know, broadly speaking, dealt with COVID? And then if you could talk a little bit about the most recent developments with this new variant, the UK variant. I know uh, some of the reports out of Khuzestan and some of the other provinces that it is really taking hold there. So what is the situation now with COVID? Okay, the current situation in at least the capital has improved or the north part of the country has improved in that schools have been open for a couple more, three, four weeks now, half day, but schools are open. Um, life is getting a bit more normal in most of the country, with the exception of Khuzestan province, where you are right, not only the numbers are high, but the variant um, uh, seen in UK, seen in other parts of the world, which spreads very quickly in addition to it being a, a variant, uh, is taking effect. So uh, Khuzestan province has now been put back, back on lockdown. I don't think the Iranian government has done any better or worse than other governments uh, when you look at it over the last 12 months, 12, 13 months. Um, it has had all the variations I notice in the UK in that... Uh, there is the economic factor of trying to keep things open. On the other hand, there is the fear of uh, the, vac the, the uh, virus spreading. So it's been um, almost as 
as variant as John, Boris Johnson's attitude towards COVID in the UK. One day they open, there is uh, a spread of virus, they try and close down. Two uh, separating factors have to be remembered. One is that when the government has put restrictions in terms of movement, in terms of people gathering and so on, and especially in terms of opening shops, opening businesses, the severe economic situation has forced people to break those. The reasons are very simple. And if you listen to radio interviews, TV interviews, you hear what people are saying inside Iran. They will tell you that um, between dying of hunger, this is what people were saying last summer, between dying of hunger or dying of COVID, they rather die of COVID because if they don't work, if they don't open their stall, if they don't do their daily job, um, they will die of hunger and their family will die of hunger. So the choices have been stark. And that's true of, I think, most of the world. It's not a, it's not a, a it has become, this pandemic has hit the world at a time of great economic um, gap between the richer and the poor, and obviously the poor have very little choice in it. Another factor that has to be remembered is that the Iranian government didn't impose very harsh penalties, didn't arrest people, didn't put financial penalties on those who were breaking the regulation. And that again is inevitable. If you are a government who is not very popular, if you're a government who is blamed for the economic situation, for the failure of the nuclear deal, for lack of political freedom, etc., etc., you don't want to be too harsh on this subject, where you can, like the Johnson government, later blame the population for breaking lockdowns, right? So the Rouhani government has not uh, put harsh penalties, hasn't arrested people. And the critics rightly pointed point out that that was a mistake because it obviously, if you don't, if you have a lockdown, but you don't um, put penalties on it, it's broken. We saw massive uh, um, traffic jams in Iran last new Iranian New Year, March, mid 20th, 22nd of March, 2020, when the government had said, don't travel to other provinces. So obviously the New Year period led to a situation where the virus spread considerably all over the country. Having said all of that, I'm also not amongst those people who just say, oh, Iran has done terribly badly. There is something you have to remember. There are universities in every town, every city in Iran, and many of those have educated medics. So on the ground, there is a large number of medics in the country. And the successes of the country, which some people only point out to the successes, I was trying to give a more balanced view. The successes are very much due to this network of medics that worked together uh, from below, from what I can understand, to stop the spread of the virus, and which is now 
gathering momentum in terms of vaccination. So from that point of view, the fact that uh, so many medics were educated in the last 20, 25 years did make a difference if you compare Iran with some of its neighbors. Having said that, it's a very, I want to give a very mixed picture. It's not black and white. There are aspects where the government could have done better. Uh, there are aspects where the population, given the sanctions, given poverty, had to work and therefore broke, broke lockdown. But there is also this uh, grassroots, what I would call uh, in the old Chinese words, they used to call them barefoot doctors. These are not barefoot doctors. They've been educated in Iranian universities. They have a level of medical education and they have been working much better than people expected. Well, that's certainly a hopeful note, and I like to end on a hopeful note. So we will leave it there. Yasamin Mather, thank you so much for coming back to Counterpunch Radio. The organization hands off the people of Iran. The website, hopoi.org. Yasamin is the best resource I know for everything Iran, and I'm always happy to speak to you. Yasamin, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again very soon.